What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 158. My name is Zach, I'm one of your hosts, and joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not too much. I've just got a quick announcement. <clears throat> you shall not pass me on the trophy leaderboard this time around because <laughs> oh no one gosh. is catching me this time. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, where is he going with this? Um, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean, Hey, kudos to you. Uh, you're, we were just talking about this in the pre-show, but like you have a 50% trophy rate right now over yeah. like, a nearly statistically significant number of matches. And that's pretty dope. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this set. I um, honestly, I'm glad that a lot of it's being opened because it makes a lot of the cards that I want from it very cheap. Uh, you know, the more packs get open to find that one ring, the cheaper all the, you know, bulk rares actually end up getting, including bulk mythics too. So I, I don't know if I'm going to try to get like a regular booster box or maybe build a set cube of this, but, uh, this is an all timer for me. I'm, I'm loving it. I was considering doing a set cube too, just to give me an excuse to buy a box or two mm-hmm. <laughs> and try to crack that, uh, that one ring. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems pretty sweet. I, Spoiler alert, and maybe to the disdain of our listeners, I haven't drafted the set yet. Tisk um, tisk. On the bright side, my voice is shot this week, as I'm sure you can tell. And so I'm just going to let Ben run with this episode for the most part. I've, of course, I'm still here and we'll have conversation back and forth. But you obviously have a lot of thoughts on the format, Ben. So we'll get into that before we do. Of course, our usual housekeeping. Do check out the Discord if you're not already in there. You can see Ben posting all of his stupid trophy decks <laughs> and uh, discuss all sorts of picks and things like that. The link to that is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Huge, huge thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us over there each and every week. We love you guys. Perks over there include things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, our pre-show recordings. You also get a shout out on the show, which I don't think we ever mentioned, but that's always been a perk. Um, (laughs) And our Draft Chef Hero cards signed by us and sent to you in the mail with a nice thank you note just to, again, give our appreciation for your support. So you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draftchefpod. All right, Ben, crack a draft type thing. What you got? All right. I've got a little bit of a weird one here. I've got a pack one pick 10. So kind of rounding out the uh, the end of, of pack one. So it was a bit of a rough pack. Uh, I did first pick an Aomer Marshal of Rohan. This is the four mana four four haste. And whenever another legendary creature attacking dies, uh, you get another combat step. Pretty cool. Pretty cool card. I mean, just a four mana four four haste. It's a human relevant type. You know, that's good by itself. Uh, now, pack one was a bit of a mess, though. I picked up some other good red cards along the aggressive vector, a Rohirrim Lancer, a Battlescarred Goblin, uh, to a lesser extent, Harajim Spearmaster, Cast Into the Fire. And then I started venturing out in some other directions. I picked up a, a, a Woes Pathfinder, a Strider, Ranger of the North, and a Chance Met Elves in green. So I have a bunch of junk. I also picked up a Legolas at one point because there was nothing else in the pack and I was specking on maybe blue-green opening up because when the blue-green deck is open, it's really open. Like no one wants anything. So sometimes you can wind up with a really busted blue-green pile like that. So now I have this pretty solid, I guess like, I don't know, teamer pile, mostly red-green pile right now. And I see pack one, pick 10, uh, five cards left in the pack. Here are my options. There's a Bill Fernie Bree Swindler. Uh, which I think is kind of junk. That's the two mana two one. Um, when it becomes blocked, you either give them a horse or you make a treasure. It's it's not that good. Uh, there's an Arwen's Gift, the four mana sorcery. Costs one less if you have two or more legends and you scry two, draw two. 
There's a Captain of Umbar, three mana, two, three. You can pay one tap, draw, and discard. There's a Wizard's Rockets, the uh, kind of mana-fixing cantrip artifact. And there's a Shire Terrace, also mana-fixing. Um, it's worse than Evolving Wilds, but it's still pretty solid. So uh, really not a lot to like in this. <laughs> no red cards, no green cards, uh, not even any black or white cards, right? What are you looking at here? Well, uh, like I said, I haven't drafted the format yet, so I'm not too sure what actually works and what doesn't. I do recall hearing blue is a pretty solid color in the format, but obviously you're not this far into pack one. You're you're pretty solid in, in red-green, and it almost looks like any of these picks will be inconsequential. I don't know that your deck necessarily seems to care about Wizards Rockets just yet. Um, ironically, that would help you splash from these blue cards, but... Mm. Uh, I think I'd probably just go with, well, the brief, yeah, as you said, the brief Ernie seems like pretty mediocre. Um, the, the land in this pack is also just like kind of meh. Um, and the other three drop that's in the pack doesn't, I mean, it's a looter, I guess, but it doesn't seem all that amazing either. I'd probably just go with either wizard's rockets or Arwen's gift. And maybe you end up splashing the Arwen's gift or using the wizard's rockets to splash some big rare later on. Um, I think that's that's where my head's at, at least. I don't know exactly which of the two I'd take, though. Mm-hmm. I ended up on the Arwen's Gift for a very specific reason. I drafted Red Green a couple times. Um, once, I think I trophied with it. The other, I think, was a total train wreck. It just didn't seem to work compared to, like, the black-red decks. Um, red is, st- is strong, but green is probably the worst color in the format. So pairing the, one of the best colors and the worst color, it's, you know, it can be hit or miss. Uh, I found the Woes Pathfinders to be pretty important in this. Um, maybe giving you the option to splash to bump up your power level a little bit. But uh, honestly, the biggest problem that I had was that you just don't have a lot of two-for-ones in red-green. And this format, you need to get those little edges by two-for-oneing. So I was thinking to myself, hmm, what if I try to solve the problem of red-green doesn't have a lot of card advantage by just jamming a bunch of Arwen's Gifts? which I actually did. <laughs> I, I picked up two more and I played red-green, splashing three copies of Arwen's Gift. Uh, and then one, I think I was splashing, I ended up picking up a Shire Terrace later and I got a Faramir Prince of Athelion, the four mana 3-3 three, three that basically says you win the game. And I, I put a blue-white card in my red-green deck and that actually worked out really well too. Uh, so <laughs> I, I solved the problem of red-green being kind of mid by... Uh, Opening one busted rare and putting in a bunch of card draw spells. Classic teamer. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. Nice. That's the that's the Faramir I hear everybody calling Unfaramir, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about Unfaramir later. All right. On to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. Ben, what's going on? Well, uh, there is the obvious. I've been I've been doing pretty well at Lord of the Rings draft. Uh, really, really enjoying it. Lord of the Rings is near and dear to my heart, so it's a, it's a treat to get to draft this set. Plus, the fact that it's summer break for me. Um, don't have to think about teaching for a while. I've just been experiencing a nice balance of Magic the Gathering, playing uh, Zelda, and going to the beach and relaxing and attempting to resolve my pretty bad sunburn from from earlier so uh it's it's a pretty good life to live you know uh at least uh, until school year starts up again then well i've got a couple months for that uh the the tip this week uh the days fill up fast in the summer you know like there's only i think like eight weekends that teachers get in the summer and that's that's a lot less than you'd think um we don't really get days off during the school year. That's not really a thing <laughs> for teachers. So I kind of have to use all of my I, like summer weekends as best as I can because 
lot of my friends don't have, you know, the whole summer off. So uh, I got to kind of do a million things as fast as I can. And uh, I don't know, almost like a, a, you have to turbo your enjoyment of the summer. You have to just get it all in. So I'm going to see if I can make that happen. How about you? Uh, I'll start with my tibble. My tibble is that uh, I've been sick for the last week, um, likely lending to the voice loss. I, I don't remember the last time I lost my voice. And this is this what you're hearing now is actually it starting to get better. Uh, two days ago, I functionally couldn't speak. Hmm. Yesterday was really, really raspy. Um, I actually like practiced doing the intro to the show in my bathroom, like in front of the mirror <laughs> and my voice cracked so many times I couldn't stop laughing. So I was like, I'm never going to get through the intro. I can't stop laughing at myself. Oh man, that um, would have been funny though. <laughs> I did manage to get through it though. So I'm pretty, pretty happy with that. But, um, yeah, so being sick sucks. Not a huge fan of that. Um, my, I have a few tibbles this week. The other is that I haven't touched Lord of the Rings yet. Obviously, I want to do that. My The reason I haven't touched it is because since I'm feeling sick, uh, I typically avoid drafting when I don't feel like 100% because I'm just going to throw gems away. And Makes sense. so I, I didn't want to like just you know, ruin, uh, what could otherwise be an amazing run at LTR. I mean, if, if Ben can do it, um, <laughs> good point. <laughs> And my other table is like, what is this weather lately? I don't know if everybody's seeing this, but Ben and I are in like the Northeast in the U S and it's been like intraday torrential downpour, beautiful sun, more rain back to the sun like yeah. three or four times a day for the last week. And it's been kind of cool, but also like, can we just have a day of like the same weather? Yeah. Uh, that would be nice. A lot of like severe thunderstorms just happening at random times. It wasn't supposed to storm here last night. Uh, turns out it did. And I left my hiking boots outside to dry. Those I, I came back home and they were comedically fully filled of water. <laughs> that was, <laughs> nice. I guess that um, means no water's getting into them, you know? <laughs> because the <laughs> True. Yeah, it's not getting out. It's not getting in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my Teferi, though, is ironically, despite being sick, I'm feeling pretty good overall. Like, like kind of to your point, like life just feels good right now. Uh, my stress levels are relatively low and, um, you know, I've got a couple of little like side things I'm working on, just little projects, keeping me busy, practicing guitar and things like that. Um, unfortunately being sick has kept me out of the gym, which really sucks. Like two weeks out of the gym now after having done it for like six months straight feels really bad. Like I feel yeah. terrible, but, uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good overall. So I'm hoping that continues as I get better. <laughs> Dope. All right, on to our listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Dorigan, who asks, do you present in a radio voice or in your own voice? Either way, let us hear your stereotypical local accent. Yeah, that, that's fun. I'm always curious to hear this more from the listeners, um, given that we have people all around the world, you know. Uh, I've been told that I have a bit of a South Jersey accent, only for certain words like water. Uh, that is You don't say I, water like a South Jerseyan. Do, do I not? Water? No, South... Oh, you kind of do. South Jerseyans always say water instead of water. And I yeah. say that as someone who grew up in South Jersey, but I never caught on to the calling it water thing. Yeah, I don't say like water, but water definitely like a W-H-D-D-E-R. I know is, uh, is up there. Another big one that I've gotten roasted for in North Jersey is um, calling things hoagies. Apparently that's not oh. cool in other places like an Italian hoagie that just rolls off the tongue. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I've gotten pretty roasted for that one in, in the New York area. Yeah, Hoagie's definitely a South Jersey slash like Philly area kind of phrase or word. Um, yeah, something else that I, I don't think either of us say is John, but I think it's well within our rights. We're close enough to Philly if we wanted to. I don't know that what that means. 
Oh, then maybe not. John is just like a Philly slang for a thing. Like, oh, like go get those Johns or like something like that. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I do know what that means. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've never really done that uh, or said that. I will say I have had people like I used to live with roommates who definitely told me that I change the way I talk when I'm recording. I don't do it on purpose. Apparently, mm. I do have like a radio voice, though, the way, like the inflection or um, and, you know, like things like the intro where I'm like, what's up? Like, I don't talk like that. I don't drag out my words, but he does. He, um, he does. <laughs> don't listen to him. Um, but we definitely have like some sort of I think I drop G's a lot. So like words that end in ing when I pronounce them will end in in mm. um, running, you know, something like that. Like, I just won't say the G at the end. Yeah, um, I think that's probably one of the big ones. But yeah, it's funny because when I tell people I'm from Jersey who have met me for a while or maybe didn't know I was, I was from South Jersey. They always assume that people from South Jersey have either like a New Yorker accent or the, um, this is like stereotypical, uh, Jersey shore accent. The Italian really, accent. Yeah. Right. Which is really just like an Italian. I always think of it as like a, more of a New Yorker accent, but yeah, most people in South Jersey don't actually talk like that. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing that I think is pretty common in, in New Jersey is like, a rolling the the did you just or like did ya um, oh yeah into like did ya yeah that like it wouldn't be weird for me to be like ah, man I, I know it's hard to think about it and say it at the same time uh did you draft any lord of the rings yet like i, I think i just said that as one syllable <laughs> right yeah, J- yeah. did you ju- draft any yeah like i would i would just say it like that uh, as for radio voice, I've been told my normal voice is a radio voice. I don't think I'm doing anything very different, <laughs> but, uh, my, my students ask me that all the time. If I like, uh, but I can actually do, this is me talking regularly, to be honest, I could do more of a radio voice. Uh, I don't know what to say with it. Maybe uh, let me see here. What's something that something that I could read. Oh, here you go. I have a copy of spiteful banditry, uh, right here. Uh, hear me out. Spiteful banditry. X red red enchantment. When spiteful banditry enters the battlefield, it deals X damage to each creature. That's a little more radio go, yeah. of me. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like ebook level of uh, <laughs> voice manipulation, I suppose. I've thought about trying to get like a like a side thing, doing voice acting or like on Fiverr or something. I don't know. I told myself one summer when I have time, maybe I'll I'll, I'll get around to that. Be kind of fun. Yeah. All right, on to our main topic. This is our Lord of the Rings first impressions show. So we're going to kind of go through quick overview, some of the best decks and vectors that Ben has kind of come across. Again, I haven't drafted the set, so I'm going to be mostly, I'm, I'm almost thinking of this like slightly interview style where I'm just going to ask you questions about the set. We can dive Let's into do it. things that you've experienced. And then uh, we'll go through some format notes and some different, you know, interesting things you can do in the format. So let's just start off. What are your overall thoughts on the format so far? We've had it for what, two weeks now? Yeah, something like that. Uh, first of all, it's fun. I like it. And yeah, uh, I'm a little skewed because you tend to like things more when you're doing well with them. But uh, I think this is just a, a pretty solid format. Uh, I think it does Lord of the Rings justice. A lot of the cards really do capture these uh, these characters that we all know and love. For example, like Gandalf the Grey, uh, the three blue, red, three, four. Uh, his abilities are very Gandalf-like. You know, you get to do all these cool tricks. Some of them are little, some of them are more impactful. You get to copy a spell or just untap a permanent. And then he tucks himself away because Gandalf's known for popping in and out. You know, (laughs) that's kind of what he does. So uh, all the legends really play how they feel like they should. 
there's not a single one that I'm disappointed by or like, oh man, I wish this, or like, this is a flavor fail. I don't have a single critique in that regard. So, you know, kudos for nailing Lord of the Rings. And honestly, the reception has been pretty great. Um, everything with the one ring, we've been over this before. It's hilarious. <laughs> and I love that prices on chase rares and mythics are like, a dollar to ten dollars like spiteful banditry this is a the red meat hook massacre it's like eight bucks you know like commander player is gonna love that so uh overall very successful set that's awesome yeah i did, i never really like when they announced the one ring thing i didn't actually consider the effect that would have on the secondary market but it obviously like it makes a lot of sense that it is affecting the secondary market if obviously if mm. people are opening a lot more product there are a lot more copies of these cards being you know, thrown around. So they should be cheaper. Um, but it is nice to see from someone who's like not necessarily a collector, but maybe a deck builder and wants to put these cards in their, in their commander decks or, or things like that. Um, it is great to see them go down in cost. I think that's been something that, uh, overall is one of the more prohibitive parts of magic is just that mm. cards are expensive. So that's pretty great. What, uh, before we dive into like each of the best vectors and decks that you found, like what has been your favorite deck, whether it's the best or not, aside like what has been your favorite deck to play Ooh, definitely favorite has been blue green scry uh it's it's one of those ones where you know you can tell usually within the first like five or six picks if it's coming together uh because you you see like an arwen and domiel or like a legolas or i don't know maybe if, if you're lucky one of the rare ones like a galadriel or um one of those other random elves uh, you can tell when it's about to happen. And when it happens, you're like, oh, man, time to gear up because I'm going to wheel some wild stuff. Uh, I think blue, green, scry. Plus, when it works, it's an engine. And decks in this format, they they need a vector that can keep them going into turn like 9, 10, 11, uh, unless you're planning on killing quick. So I, I've really enjoyed the play style of blue, green, scry. It's pretty fun, uh, especially in a, in a set like this where ripping lands off the top in the late game is, is how you lose. Uh, it doesn't happen with the blue, green, scry deck. Sweet. So based on 17 lands data, it seems like black, red are the best colors overall, just from win rates, uh, blue, and then white and green are kind of at the bottom. Um, what do you want to walk us through all these decks and these vectors then? Yeah, let's do it. So, um, black, I think is the strongest color, uh, by a good bit. It's like black and then red, a little bit of distance, then blue, a, a good chunk of distance, uh, then white and then a good chunk more and then green. But the Grixis colors are, are up there. Uh, a mass is the best vector, I think. The best of the like mechanic vectors. A mass kind of gives you the opportunity to make important decisions at different points that some of the other decks don't let you make. For example, trading off a mass tokens is a huge reason that a mass is good in this format. Uh, it turns every card with a mass into a potential two for one if you use them right. If you don't use them right, it can be disastrous. So uh, mid-range just power stuff has been good too. Like any raw two for one is going to do well in this format. Uh, a card like Dunlin Curbane, it represents the exact type of thing I want in this format. That's the two and a black, one one flyer. It's a bird horror uh, at common when it ETVs a mass two. So that card is, you know, textbook what you want in this format. It's really strong. Now, th these Grixis decks, um, I don't like them all equally. I think blue-black, if you told me I was going to you know, play in the Arena Open tomorrow, uh, which actually, as of this release, I might. <laughs> so, uh, oh man, I, that's another thing I should mention. May or may not actually get to do the Open. I have this big camping trip scheduled for this weekend, so I don't actually know if I'm going to get to play in the Open because I'm going to be in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I don't know. Either way, um, 
I, I wouldn't be too salty if I missed out for like a fun camping trip, but whatever. So if you told me I was going to play in the arena open uh, and you were going to get a good version of a certain color pair, I would say give me a good blue-black deck. Like that tends to be the type of deck that can grind the most, draw the most, um, recur the most, do the most busted stuff. I don't mind splashing red if you're you know, tangential to it. There's pretty easy ways to splash. Uh, there's treasures flying around sometimes. If you draw enough cards, it's kind of like fixing. I like black-red beneath that. A good black-red deck needs to be a little tighter. It's usually a little harder on the amass and sack vectors. Uh, you don't need as much raw card draw, and it can sometimes suffer in that. It's a little more aggressive, whereas the blue-black deck is a little more reactive. And then sometimes you can do a uh, like a, a blue-red spells deck that's kind of in the middle. It's a little bit tempo-y. I also don't mind splashing black in that deck, but that one's not... Uh, yeah, I'd put it somewhere between aggressive and uh, or like assertive and reactive. That one's kind of in the middle. It can do both. Sometimes blue-red has really aggressive draws where you have like a pinger and then four spells. Uh, or sometimes it can play a really reactive game plan where you just kill all their stuff, then you land a Saruman and uh, start going off from there. Oh, so a couple cards I want to shout out in, um, in, in this combo particularly. Mouth of Sauron. This card really overperformed for me in the first couple of weeks. Uh, super high pick. That's the three blue, black. What is it? A three, four. When it enters the battlefield, target player mills three cards. And then you amass orcs X, where X is the number of instants and sorcery cards in that player's graveyard. Uh, and again, it's a three, four. So what this usually ends up being is five mana for a three, four, and then a 10, 10. You know, like, especially if you if you're playing your amass cards well, where maybe you sack your existing amass token to a nasty end or a, a lash of the balrog or something to kill one of their things then you get a whole new token using the amass cards smartly uh because if you just keep stacking more and more counters on one creature that's not as good as getting multiple different bodies that you can trade off or do different things with so uh that's why i think black is particularly strong because it has ways to both amass and to sack the amass stuff so the, the Mouth of Sauron, um, I think you're supposed to put this in a deck with zero instants and sorceries in it. Not that Blue Black would ever have that. But, you know, even just getting uh, like a 2-2 off of this is still really strong. Yeah, it sounds pretty sweet. There, there seems to be a lot of sort of strategic almost math you can do with those cards. It's like when you have them in your hand, it's do I trade this off now? Do I play this to buff my amass creature? Do I oh, yeah. wait to get this effect until after I've been able to chump the amass thing? Do I sack it to something else? And then, you know, there's all sorts of different permutations of these uh, these sort of effects that you can chain together to get different amounts of value out of. So it's it sounds cool. It's almost like a mini game within the game. Oh, yeah. Amass is super complicated. Tons of decision points. I mean, what about the case where your opponent's at six and you have a two to amass and you can amass uh, and you have like Mouth of Sauron in your hand, right? Then you're getting like four hasty power out of it or something like that that you can usually kill from there. Um, there's there's so many little micro decisions that happen in the amass vector. Um, again, when to sack it to effects, when to trade it off with an opponent's thing, when to leave it on blocks to try to trade or when to jam it into your opponent's stuff and hope they block or uh, trade or something. Maybe uh, maybe sometimes this play has come up a bunch. You leave back only your amass token, knowing your opponent has a kill spell in hand so that they'll kill it, functionally wasting their card because then you have an instant speedway to amass. Uh, it, it gets really complicated really fast. But at the same time, this is the most complicated thing in the format. So if you've gotten this down, then everything else will kind of fall into place. Everything else seems pretty trivial in comparison. Like a, a good amass deck versus a green-white tokens or a green-white food deck, it's just not even close. It, like 
you can have a full board and your opponent will have nothing in hand, nothing on board. And you'll look at it and be like, how did it get to this? But it's just because you made smart little decisions on when to trade off your mass tokens, when to attack, uh, when to do all that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's interesting because that almost is like, and, and I think we all kind of know this. We've never explicitly mentioned this on the show, but it, you know, that interaction you just described kind of showcases how important building a deck that has more decision points is for your gameplay. Like a deck that has the ability to to offer you more decisions typically will perform better than a deck that simply can't offer you decisions because it doesn't have anything going for it. Another deck that I mentioned already, the blue-green scry vector. Again, when you see this open, you'll know. You know, it's usually like you pick a good blue card in your first pack and then you see like a pick three or four Arwen or Galadriel and then you're like, all right, I'm in. We'll see what happens. Uh, The downside is when you don't get there with the higher rarity payoffs. Then, I mean, these higher rarity ones tend to be how you get your two for ones in this uh, in this deck. Like just just scrying a bunch isn't actually card advantage. Uh, You'll get run over by like a red white deck or something if you try to just, you know, win that way. You'll get outground by a blue black deck that can better leverage its two for ones against your scries. Right. Uh, So so this deck, you know, when it comes together, it can be really good. But um, I don't love the matchup of blue green versus like a Grixis deck Hmm. is would you say this is this vector really only works in these colors? Because and for for the listener, when we talk vectors, we're talking more about a direction the deck goes versus the colors themselves. And you, you'll you heard Ben talk about the the amass vector actually being present in quite a few different color pairs or even uh, wedges, right? Three colors. Is blue green really the only place you're seeing the scry vector work? Yeah, yeah. I've tried it in blue black a little bit, um, but the good repetitive scry cards. There's the uh, what is it, Lothlorien Lookout, one of the green one three when it attacks scry one. That that's like a good solid repetitive scry thing. There's the three mana uncommon Elrond um, that can kind of get you there, but no, I, I haven't found it worth doing any of the colors. I mean, I, actually, I, I should note the amass uh, vector. It can be both assertive or reactive. I think that's a strength of it. Whereas the blue-green scry vector, it kind of wants to attack. It can't really grind out. It can if you can go big enough. And there's a couple of rares that let you do it, like uh, Radagast or the uh, the four mana, the thing that lets you cast creatures off the top. Those can put you over the over the top of your opponents. But um, otherwise, no. I think this is pretty strictly blue-green. Really, Arwen and Domiel is is the card you want for this. It's like this, and then a bunch of repetitive ways to scry. That's I mean, that that kind of is supported by these good uncommons, and that can take you pretty far, too. A deck I like a little less is the blue-white draw two. I mean, sometimes you can get, like, just a bunch of good flyers and win the game that way. But I found that this deck only really goes off when you have multiple copies of the two-drop uh, Imrahil. Uh, the white-blue 2-2, two, two, when you draw your second card each turn, you make a 1-1. One, one. And then you need repetitive ways to draw cards like that each turn. Uh, there's the the captain, uh, the 3-mana 2-3, two, you can pay 1 to loot. That's kind of the, the way you enable this deck. Uh, but otherwise, there's not a ton of ways to draw multiple cards each turn besides the ring. So you kind of need to... You need to straddle those two vectors to have a good blue-white deck that does this. Um, I don't know. You need to be both tempting a bunch and also have the payoffs and also have creatures that get rewarded for it. It's a little bit of a mess. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe for disaster for any deck, especially a deck that's what we talked about earlier in in, in sort of our set, like our format uh, rundown, which we were calling it. Um, this seemed to be one of those typical blue-white aggro decks that want to go very low curve, uh, power out a bunch of creatures, attack, 
get some benefits of drawing your extra cards in the late game. And if you're straddling two separate vectors, like those decks need to be really tight to be effective. And if you're straddling two separate vectors to put this vector together, you're probably not going to have that tight deck that you really need to make it work in the first place. Yeah, like against blue-white, if they make a ring bearer and are trying to win that way, maybe they didn't get that many tempted by the ring cards. If you just kill the ring bearer, then they're left with all these good payoffs and no way to enable it. I've seen stuff like uh, these, um, these paths just get stranded there as you kind of efficiently remove all the things that you need to and just ignore their, you know, like two mana two twos and three mana three twos that don't really do anything else. Man, this one's sad for you. The food vector. It's not good. <laughs> Green, white yeah. food. Uh, it is... It's bad. Uh, the green-white deck can be good, though. Actually, one of the scariest decks in the format that I played against was a green-white deck that had two copies of Frodo, and then just basically every other creature was a green or white legend. Um, they had a couple rares floating in there, too, but most of them were just like random, uncommon green and white legends. And just powering up Frodo and just going nuts <laughs> and just kind of like turbo ring-bearing, uh, it, it, was, it was good. It was really strong. Um, I mean, they, they were pretty much getting their, their ring fully online by turn like four or five consistently. And, um, oh. that can, that can definitely make problems for like a blue, black grindy deck that eventually if you're spending all your kill spells on every single one of their legends, then like eventually you're going to run out of kill spells. Yeah. And this is a format where there are legends all over the place. So I can imagine that's not exactly like extremely difficult to build, but it sounds like that's a very specific vector direction for those colors. It is, that, yeah. Uh, you kind of need your draft to go well, in, like go a certain way for that deck to come together. Yeah, like I wouldn't ever start a, a deck by taking a Frodo. Um, no, actually, I take that back. Maybe I would. Um, if there was nothing else in the pack, then there could be a situation where the, the EV, the value you would get from first picking a Frodo and maybe picking up a second at some point if you cut green or white pretty hard. Because let's be honest, these two, these two colors, they're not good. So people are, are going to start to avoid them. Every once in a while, you will get a deck with two Frodos and a couple like random three drops, uh, a couple Merriducks, a couple uh, Pippins, and then, then you're just set. Now, green, it's not totally out. Woe's Pathfinder is a good card. Uh, this is the, uh, the two-mana mana dork. It's a 1-1. One, one. It taps for mana of any color, which is great for splashing. And then you can pay seven and tap it to give a creature 3-3 three, three and trample until in a turn. And that's, that's a good onboard trick. So uh, sometimes you'll just put three Woe's Pathfinders in a deck and then just jam a bunch of multicolored stuff in and uh, just kind of go nuts and see what happens. Uh, blue, green, and blue, black can be good shells for that. Yeah, it sounds like Woe's Pathfinder actually does a pretty good RAF impression where, you know, it does something relevant on the upfront and then later on you can dump mana into it to just basically buff your board and swing for lethal. I've had top decking situations where <laughs> I was kind of looking at like what's left in my deck and I'm thinking like, yeah, I want to draw my Woe's Pathfinder to, you know, break this board stall. I mean, 3-3 three, three Trample, that that's huge. If both players are at low life totals, you have to respect it. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you will actually just kill your opponent because they forget it's there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a mana dork <laughs> with a pump spell on it like what more could a green deck ask for uh, i will say great halt the citadel is also pretty good for splashing while we're on the topic uh, the green decks can do this pretty easily and the mana cyclers make it pretty uh pretty easy to splash no matter what you're doing but great halls just be careful with it it only taps to cast uh legendaries so you can't use it to cast like i don't know an instant that might you know be pretty key for your deck so you got to be careful about trimming too many basics uh, it does work on legendary spells, though. It's not just legendary creatures. So I actually had a, a deck where I, I cast Doors of Durin off of the Great Halls of the Citadel. 
that was a, that was a pretty sick one. Nice. So those are like some of the main vectors. We didn't talk about all of them, but obviously those are the ones that are kind of standing out to you, Ben. Um, let's dive into some more like general thoughts on the, on the format, things that you've noticed are, uh, potentially like trends throughout the format, uh, cards that are really standing out to you, any of those types of things. Yeah. Let's start off with, I guess the speed, uh, this can be a grindy format, but it can also be over pretty quick if you're playing against a, a red hasty deck. I think some of the best cards in red are the ones that let it close out games quick. So I'm going to say this is a pretty middle of the road uh, speed format. You know, it's not like a turn one, you're going to die deck uh, type of format, but it's also not like a super stupid grindy mid range format. It's, it's kind of in the middle. Uh, now, they've powered creatures down. In some in some sets, if uh, if your opponent played a one drop, you were just dead. <laughs> in some recent sets, even uh, if they went one drop, two drop, three drop, there were some formats in the last couple where uh, if you didn't play anything by turn three, you were you were just so far behind, you were totally screwed. But that's not the way the set is. My current hypothesis is that creatures in this set have been powered down, and um, Spells in this set have been powered up. Uh, legendary artifacts have been powered up. One of the best cards in the set is Palantir of Orthanc. It's a three mana do nothing. <laughs> it, it doesn't do anything. It draws an extra card every turn. Uh, maybe deals your opponent some damage. No one knows how to play against that card properly, I, I will say. Uh, always take it. Always put it in every deck. Um, but like the one ring is playable. That's like a four mana draw spell that deals you damage. That's a good card in this format. So uh, you have time to do the things you want to do. And that's not something that every recent set had. So I like it. It lets me uh, have time for all my nonsense. So uh, there's some good four drops in the set. Uh, I guess a note about your curve. Uh, if you have a solid curve, maybe deprioritize your four drops. There's just a lot of good ones, a lot of legends in that slot. And uh, the faster decks will be able to prey on people that, you know, overdraft their top end. Yeah, I guess that kind of plays into the speed of the format as well. If there are a lot of good four drops, that's going to slow things down because the, you know, the power is kind of top heavy in the format. But you've talked a little bit so far about the different decks of mass and scry really being two of them that that I've noticed this sort of dichotomy with. But it sounds in this format like decks are either built on some kind of engine or they just aren't. And the ones that have some kind of engine going are more powerful than the ones that don't. So what can you talk to more to, to a little bit more about that? Like what are, what are the engines you've seen and how are those kind of affecting the, the way the format plays out? Absolutely. I think the easiest way to talk about this is to give a non-example. I've seen a couple, usually in like the Obzon color pair decks, uh, mostly green, white, to be honest, these green and white decks that they'll play just a bunch of cards that don't result in card advantage. They don't create multiple bodies. They don't amass. They don't, I mean, maybe they scry or something. Um, there's a bunch of three drops that are that are like this, like Mirror Mirror Guardian, I think is one. Uh, the three mana four two, when it dies, you're tempted. I just don't think that card is playable in this format because you really need every single thing you're doing to result in some sort of card or mana or something advantage. And then enough of those little advantages are what helps you win the game. So um, there are some one card engines, one card, just win the game type cards. Uh, Faramir, aka Unfaramir, Prince of Athelion. That's two blue-white for a 3-3. Three, three. I think he's a human noble or something uh, at rare. And at the and at the end of your turn, you pick a target opponent. It's always your opponent, right? Uh, and then during their turn, if they attack you, during that end step, you get three 1-1s. One if they don't attack you, you get a card. 
So no matter what, oh, if, if Faramir lives to the end of your turn and that trigger goes on the stack, the, the, the ability stays. Even if they kill Faramir on their turn and then attack, you still get three one ones. So usually at worst, this is a four mana three three draw card. Uh, it's usually a lot better than that. It's usually something like four mana three three. You get six tokens and two cards and uh, <laughs> landing one of these early. And if they don't have a way to kill it, that'll just win you the game by itself. So you don't need a, a good deck if you if you have a Faramir. Uh, similar thing with Palantir of Orthanc. This is this is a funny card. Uh, three mana, legendary artifact at, uh, at Mythic. At your end step, you, you scry two. And then an opponent can either have you mill, you, you put like a some kind of pure, preordained counter, I don't even know, some counter on it. And then uh, at the end of the turn, you either mill cards equal to the number of counters on it, and you get a new counter each turn. Uh, or, and your opponent takes damage equal to the total mana value of milled cards, or you draw a card. So the way this tends to play is you play it, one counter goes on it, and then your opponent has the option to either mill you for one and take damage equal to the value, or let you draw the card. Now the joke is you've scried two. So depending on you know what you need, you can keep like a, the best thing to keep on top is actually a land cycler, because those things all cost like five or six. So if you keep a land cycler on top, uh, you kind of get the option for a land or a spell, but it deals them a bunch of damage. That's a, a fun little combo. So uh, they usually will take the damage the first time. So then, I don't know, let's say you kept like a troll on top. They take six and they go, oh, shoot, I can't do that again. That, that was really good. This thing's just going to kill me. And then uh, every turn you'll get to scry two and draw a card at your end step. And that's obviously really strong. <laughs> yeah, sounds uh, pretty baller. It's it's one of my pet cards in the set. I've I've beaten it a couple times um, after thinking it through a lot, and I've won with it basically every time I've cast it. Nice. So those are the, some of the easy ways to win in the set. There's other ones. Horn of Gondor will just win you the game on the spot. Um, but usually you need like a strong vector core to, to have an engine like this. Something like a Lothlorien Lookout, the one three that scries when you attack, and a Galadriel of Lothlorien. Um, that's a, w- a way to do it. Or uh, maybe a bunch of mass cards and a bunch of nasty ends. A nasty end is the one in the black instant. You sack a creature and draw two. Or if it was a legend, you draw three. If you have a mass stuff, then, you know, that's a good way to keep drawing cards, keep powering you through. And uh, I think what this all leads to is that this is a format where you can just get buried in cards. You can win the game with card advantage or lose the game because you didn't draw enough cards. <laughs> uh, compared to the usual set where... I don't know, uh, good creatures will just come down on turn two, three, four, and there's a lot of combat stuff happening, uh, almost like two ships in the night. This is a very interactive set, I found, where you're making a lot of micro decisions about combat, card draw, scrying. And I think, again, out of all the recent sets we've had, this has the highest ratio of spell power to creature power. Um, at any given time, the board just probably has a bunch of like X ones or one X's on it. And both players tend to be at like a pretty high life total. There's a lot of, um, toughness, heavy cards, uh, creatures with low power, high toughness to act as good ring bearers, but these things also block each other pretty well. So sometimes, um, you just kind of bump against each other for a little bit and wait until someone comes up with a way to have an advantage. Uh, that's where stuff like Faramir or the Palantir really shine, uh, or you have to build something else yourself. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of a lot of sets that typically don't have like a ton of card draw or are maybe like, you know, certain vectors do, but then most don't or, you know, those types of sets typically have creatures with tons of like 
good abilities on them for you to dump your mana into later in the game and still generate mm. value. It feels like this set isn't that. Like you need the cards. If you don't have the cards, you just you're just gonna lose. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of late game mana sinks. And I think that that kind of builds into that sort of setting that you you talked about in the beginning of the the episode where this is a creatures are underpowered, spells are overpowered kind of set, and you don't have that kind of uh, those types of mana sinks and ways to dump your mana in cards that aren't permanents, right? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the opposite of like a set with transform cards, right? Like we just came from March where we had flip cards where you could dump like six Phyrexian and transform them. And, and then you get this massive thing that was also at one point you're two, two for two. So uh, this is kind of the exact opposite of that. Here, what you really want to do is curve out a little bit in the beginning, uh, make some good attacks uh, if you're assertive, make some good blocks if you're uh, reactive, and then draw like four cards somehow. <laughs> Mm. Now, this isn't to say that this is like a super grindy set. Uh, there's there's ways to push through damage. And uh, if you know what they are, then you can kind of still go underneath these draw five cards type of decks. Like I've had opponents that draw three and then scoop because turns out none of their cards answered the maybe sticky threat that you landed. Um, for example, there's Rohirrim Lancer, the one mana one one for red. It's just a creature with menace. And uh, it's a human, which is a relevant creature type. And when it dies, the ring tempts you. So what that does is eventually you just kind of jam this into your opponent. Sometimes it'll get in for like four damage or you can put an equipment on it. So it'll get in for even more. Uh, And then eventually you just, you know, sack it to an effect or just jam it into something, let them block it. And uh, you get to make something else the ring bearer now. And you can usually find like a one, one token. And then that thing is going to get underneath their two twos and their three twos. Ring bearer is is a strong mechanic uh, in getting through those last couple points of damage. But that's actually not the only way. There's other cards like Landreval, Horizon Witness, the one that says whenever you attack with two more creatures, one gets flying. You can just jump something. Uh, Improvised Club, it's a fling that can hit face. Uh, it, it always deals four, but, you know, it's pretty easy to find stuff to sack in this set. Uh, Grima Wormtongue, brutal card to play against. The three mana, uh, one four in black. You can uh, tap, sacrifice a creature to make an opponent lose a life. And the real killer of this card is that your opponents can't gain life. So I can't tell you how many times I've had, I've like cast a Grima on like turn seven and my opponent just forgets to crack their food before (laughs) that they just had laying around that wasn't doing anything. Uh, And then they go, oh shoot, I'm at three. And my opponent has like a bunch of tokens and like a Grima. I guess I'm just dead. It's it's a one four, like it dodges most of the removal. Uh, a couple other things, like uh, maybe even like Denethor, Steward of Gondor, a classic aristocrat's card. And this is where I think Tempted by the Ring really shines. Uh, when you tempt a creature, it makes it much harder to block. There are some cards that act as good blockers. Funny enough, Build a Pony, uh, four mana, one four, is one of the best creatures in the set, just on rate. Uh, just a four oh, mana, wow. one four. It, if you make it the Ring Bearer, you're, they're never going to be able to profitably block it. Uh, because you can sack a food and have it deal uh, butt damage instead. So that's it functionally attacks as a 4-4. Four, four. And uh, unless, you know, let's say you're keeping it back to block with, they can't really ever attack into it. I mean, maybe they have a 1-1 one, one and a trick or something, but even then, you're probably still 2 for one them with Bill. Um, anyway, besides that, back to the, the ring bearer. The, uh, the first ring step, just make something a legend, it's pretty good. Just making something the ring bearer, uh, making it harder to block, that, that, that's pretty good for the assertive decks. 
The second one is really good, making something into a looter when it attacks, especially a hard-to-block thing. You get like a looter ill core, right? Or what was the one with Shadow? I don't know. Uh, you get a creature that's hard to block that loots on attack, and um, I've really started to feel that. When you have a creature that attacks to loot, especially if you can make it like a 1-1 one, one that they can't block, or if you can make it a flyer or something, uh, then you really start to feel as though that is your late-game engine. So um, mm. that, that's a way that you cycle through your deck. You draw a bunch of cards. Uh, you can find your key pieces to draw you into more. Step three is whatever. The, the making stuff get sacked at end of combat. You're not usually chump blocking the one ones they're attacking with or the one X's. Uh, and then the fourth step is good again. Uh, then it becomes a real threat, making your opponent lose three life when they get hit by the ring bearer. Uh, I've died to that ability many times. Now, a, a note about this. You can spend your kill spells on the cheap stuff. I have actually had moments where uh, Isolation at Orthanc, the three and a blue uh, instant, put a creature, um, what is it, f second from the top of its opponent's library, whatever it is. Uh, it, it talks a creature. I've cast that on one ones and been proud of it. You know, <laughs> sometimes you need to remove their little thing because they can draw into Attempted by the Ring spell. And then, you know, if they have attempted by the ring, then they didn't have a ring bearer before. Oh, all of a sudden they have this ring bearer. It's getting in under your blocker that you left back. Uh, it's drawing them a new card because they left a land in yeah. hand to, uh, oh, by the way, if you have tempted by the ring, always leave a land in hand. You know, uh, you need something to be able to loot away. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have a threat that you can't deal with anymore. So uh, little threats can actually creep up. I like the one to two mana kill spells a lot in this format even the bad ones like um uh, i think it's bewitching leechcraft it just taps the creature down uh for one of the blue it's an aura it can be really strong even in a set full of sack stuff sometimes you just need to tap down their two one now is this a set have you seen much interaction between people using the ring like the temptation kind of aspect with a mass tokens effectively is that is that a has that been reasonable to do or is it the two not overlap or is it just like you'd rather just be doing other stuff with your mass tokens yeah, it doesn't come up too often. Uh, the orc armies are not very good ring bearers, I guess, because they can't decide <laughs> who wants to wear it and they keep fumbling it around or dropping it or something. Uh, or they're just too stupid. I mean, they're orcs, right? Um, right. These really should be orc high uh, tokens because these things are, are pretty good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, um, it doesn't come up too often. There's a couple things in black that tempt you, obviously. Um, Golem's Bite and uh, Claim the Precious, both, both good ones. But even then, your orc armies tend to grow, so you probably want to put it on something smaller. Usually like a 1-1 a one, one or a 2-1. Rohirrim Lancer really shines here. Uh, it's just basically impossible to ever block that thing. Mm. Uh, especially as the ring bearer, right? Because then you need two <laughs> one-power creatures. Yeah. Actually, in a game just before we started recording, I, I curved a Dunlin Curbane, the bird that makes a 2-2 two, two a mass. Uh, my opponent attacked with a 2-2, two, two, and I had a Torment of Golem in hand. Another really good card. Three and a black sorcery. Your opponent reveals it their hand. You pick a non-land, they discard it, and do a mass 2. So if I had chosen to uh, say uh, there are 2-2 attacks me, right? If I had chosen to allow that 2-2 to just go through, then when I cast Torment of Golem next turn, I would put two counters on my existing orc army. Uh, and then, you know, I'd have a 4-4 orc army. That's pretty good, whatever. Uh, but then that opens me up to removal spells. You know, there's efficient kill spells in all colors in this set, uh, even in green, right? The uh, the Ent fighting card, it's really good. Uh, so... 
I chose to trade off, even though I was playing an aggressive black-red deck, because I knew that trading off that 2-2 orc army with their, you know, 2-2 whatever card uh, would make it so that when I cast Torment of Golem, I get a new orc army, a new 2-2, and it's so much better to have that new 2-2 orc army than to have a 4-4 orc army and not have traded off. Mm. I mean, think yeah, about it. Those are both two-for-ones, right? Like the Dunlin Curbane yeah. is then a two-for-one. You leave behind a 1-1 one, one flyer that you can attack with or trade off with an Athelian Kingfisher or sack to a Lash of the Balrog. Um, I think that sentence might have been the nerdiest thing I've ever said, by the way. <laughs> I've said a lot of nerdy things in my life. But then also Torment of Golem. Like you get to thought seize them and and then also leave behind a two-two. Like that's really good. Yeah. All right. I think that kind of sums it up for my thoughts on the format, but I do have some cool combos to run through. Let's hear them. So March from the Black Gate. This is a good one. Uh, one in the black. It's an enchantment. When it ETBs, you amass one. Really solid two drop in black. Uh, and then it says when you attack with an orc army, you amass one. Now, th- there's some sneaky stuff you can do with this, especially with instant speed sack outlets. Uh, it doesn't work so well with Grima Worm Tongue. You kind of would rather just have a bigger creature there. I guess you could. Uh, but then you're tapping down your Grima. But the really good one that I've noticed is uh, Nasty End. If you attack with a 1-1 orc army, and then with the amass 1 trigger on the stack, you nasty end your existing attacking 1-1, you draw 2, and then you get a new untapped 1-1. So it's kind of like a free 2-mana draw 2. Pretty good. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Sounds pretty sweet. Uh, Golem Patient Plotter, the one in the black 3-1 legend. Uh, That one's pretty good on its own. Uh, You can sack, you can pay a black, sacrifice a creature, return him to your hand, and when he leaves the battlefield, the ring tempts you. Uh, If you have two golems, you can loop them. If you have another creature in play, that's kind of fun. Um, Sack one to get back the other and then just keep going and you can turbo ring bearer that way. Uh, Also works really well with Grima Wormtongue. Grima can just keep sacking golem and then if you have like another creature or something, you can kind of go off with that. this, this whole package works really well together, including Haunt of the Dead Marshes. Really annoying card. One black, one one. Uh, it's like an elf nightmare or something. Uh, probably a zombie I don't know, or a spirit, whatever it is. Uh, it's a one one. When ETB is scry one, and you can pay two and a black to return it to the battlefield tapped. And then, of course, you get the scry one when it ETBs. So you can also loop. Um, if you have like a Grima, a Golem, and a Haunt on the battlefield, your opponent can basically never attack you. You can just kind of keep blocking, sacking, chumping, doing all sorts of nonsense, bringing them back, draining them out. You can build a really disgusting onboard engine. Uh, that's a way that you could maybe, you don't really need card draw if you're doing that much action. You're spending your mana to bring back the uh, either the golem or the haunt every turn. So that's kind of like card advantage in its own self. Another kind of little vector package that I like a lot is uh, Rally at the Hornburg plus really anything. Rally is awesome. Uh, one of the red sorcery, you make two one ones, and then humans you control gain haste. Uh, if you haven't gone Urkenbrand, Lord of Westfold, into Rally at the Hornburg in the same turn, you've been missing out. Urkenbrand is a three and a red. It's a three three. And whenever it or another human enters the battlefield under your control, uh, creatures you control get one zero. So the way this works is you play Urkenbrand, your creatures get one zero. You play Rally, your creatures get an additional two zero, including the tokens that just came in, and then. Urken brand and the two tokens gain haste. You swing for an additional, like, what, like nine, ten out of nowhere. And then your whole board is getting plus three, plus oh. Really, really cool combo. Yeah, sounds pretty dope. 
And if you don't have as many rallies, these are pretty, uh, I mean, it's one of the best commons in the set right now, according to 17 lands. Uh, Protectors of Gondor is good backup. If you just go Urkenbrand, and then this is the four mana uh, three, three, uh, ETB make a one, one, makes two humans. So you just go Urkenbrand, then next turn you play Protectors, gives your whole team 2-0. Um, again, this vector, you do want to play a bunch of early drops, preferably humans so that they're good in the late game too, after you land your Urkenbrand or uh, I don't know, whatever else you've got. Here's obviously a, a really good one using two of the best cards in the set, but Rally at the Hornburg and Horn of Gondor. Horn is the three-drop legendary artifact. When it ETBs, you make a 1-1 human, and then you can pay three, tap it, make a 1-1 human. I was realizing I don't see this card in draft very often. It's because no one ever passes it. <laughs> uh, you really have to open it. Uh, this card just wins you the game on the spot. Like, Well, actually, not on the spot. It takes like maybe three turns of activating it, but... Uh, a cool thing about this card is that activating it acts as card advantage. This is another one of those one card engines, I guess, uh, because I don't know if you had a free card in your hand that said three mana generic make three one ones. That's a good card, right? Uh, then what if I told you the next turn you have another card in your hand that says three mana make six one ones. <laughs> And oh. then you have a card in your hand that says three mana make 12 one ones. And then what's I really cool is you can, you can activate it and then rally in the same turn. To, the most I've done is swing with 20 one ones with haste. That was a pretty effective wow. way to win. Uh, a pet card of mine in the set, Rise of the Witch King, two green black. Yeah, I've given green some love here. I've, I've had some good green stuff. Uh, two green black sorcery. Each player sacks a creature. Uh, first of all, I've actually cast this just as an edict before. Like I had no creatures on board. They played like a six drop and I was like, all right, <laughs> guess that works. Wow. But uh, it says each player sacks a creature. So you usually have to sack something too. If you sacked a creature this way, you get to return a permanent to the, to the battlefield, not just a creature, but a permanent. Uh, and there's a lot of good permanents that you can return, uh, particularly the basic land cyclers. So maybe you cycle away a troll of Kaza doom, right? And then you play like a, I don't know, a golem patient plotter or a Dunlin Curbane. Then uh, turn four, you sack the Dunlin Crimbane, get back the 6-5 functionally unblockable, and then your opponent's looking at, like, they, they've played, like, three lands, and they're like, oh, man. <laughs> if they don't have unconditional removal, they're, they're basically dead on the spot. Another good little combo here is um, Rise of the Witch King and Sagas. Sagas tend to provide a lot of on-board card advantage, right? Uh, a big one here is the Bath Song. Bath Song, uh, the first two chapters are draw two, discard one. And then the final chapter is you float to blue, kind of weird. Um, and then you can shuffle any number of uh, cards from your graveyard back into your library. So the real combo here is you can, you know, let that go. Let the saga resolve. It goes to the graveyard. Then you rise the Witch King to get back the Bath Song. And then once the Bath Song final chapter goes off again, you cycle rise the Witch King back into your deck, draw it again through some card draw spell, and then you can loop these two. Uh, it's not a, you know, like a perfect, I don't know, old Innistrad spider spawning loop. They didn't give us all the tools for that, but it's usually enough value. You've drawn like eight cards or something um, and like re returned a bunch of stuff. You're making them sack. They're getting really uh, annoyed at this point because you're drawing a million cards and they've probably top decked a couple lands. So that, that's a good little synergy in the set, too. And uh, honestly, maybe the best interaction in the set that I found is... Uh, Picking up one of each of your main color land cyclers and then playing 16 lands. Like just having access to kind of 18-ish lands. Um, in this set where top decking lands in the late game is especially brutal, uh, given that there's not a lot of creatures that, like we mentioned earlier, have these activated abilities or provide repetitive advantage. So having two land cyclers 
Uh, they kind of just shore up your curve a little bit. Again, if you're playing like a super massive top end deck, maybe, you know, be careful. If you have a good six drop or two, you, you want to deprioritize these. But uh, hitting your land drops is good. Uh, I, I've kept many hands with one, I don't know, one forest, uh, a troll of cause of doom and like a woes pathfinder. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's all going to work out. <laughs> you know, uh, just getting to keep one landers, um, a certain percentage of the time when your opponent has to mold them, that that's going to feel good. All right. Well, I think that wraps up mostly Ben's thoughts on, uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Hopefully I'll get to actually get a handful of drafts in over the, the course of the next week or so we've got uh us holiday coming up. So I'll have a little extra free time as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully the sickness goes away and I can focus on, on a draft and not, uh, just toss my gems in the trash. Um, but you know, thank, thanks for walking us through all these things. This is definitely going to help me and I'm sure it'll help the listeners well when it comes to, uh, performing well in this format. Um, the arena open is in this format. So good luck to everybody who are, uh, you know, going to give a handful of stabs at the, the arena open. We'd love to see your deck lists. And, um, you know, if you make it to the draft portions as well, definitely let us see, uh, what decks you managed to build there. Um, do jump in the discord. That's the best place to be to chat all things MTG. Um, and you know, just get to know the rest of the Traficionado community. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft shaft pod. Again, huge thanks to everybody who supports us over there each and every week. And if you want to find us on Twitter, we, you can find us at draft shaft pod. Thanks folks. And we'll catch you next week. All right. So a quick thing about the open. Um, I guess I can consider myself a format expert at this point. Like I'm sure there's a lot of stuff left to do in the format. You know, I haven't seen it all quite yet, but uh, I think I've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. So uh, if you want to post your sealed pools or ask about like deck stuff in discord uh, for the arena open, I will try to answer as many questions as I can. If anyone you know wants to ask about cuts or certain cards or thoughts or anything, I'll, I'll do what I can to help everyone get some cash out there. Uh, that being said, I'm going to be, camping this weekend supposedly so uh on one hand i kind of am excited for camping you know like it's something i I haven't gotten to do before um going with a bunch of friends yeah i've never actually been full camping oh wow that blows my mind i've known you for way too long to not know that that's true that's the yeah i know you've gone a lot more than i have given that i've gone zero but yeah like i've never done a full overnight camping trip in like a tent and a sleeping bag and I don't, I can't think of a time in my life I ever did. I, I got to go buy a sleeping bag. So <laughs> uh, that being said, the weather's looking a little iffy this weekend. Like we mentioned earlier, the Northeast has just not been getting lucky. So uh, on one hand, you know, excited for camping. On the other hand, excited for the arena open. I guess we'll see what ends up happening. Either way, uh, I'm either going to have a blast, you know, going swimming, hiking, all that, or uh, maybe win $2,000. We'll see. <laughs>